Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch. I'm a co-host of the podcast along with Matt Bates, Andrew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. And we are very happy that you are listening. Uh, thanks so much to Ed Hackey for producing the show, Rebecca Terhune for social media and marketing help, as well as Tommy Molman on that front, and to James Steinbach for help with the website and back end. You're all fantastic and couldn't do this without you, so thank you. Um, I also wanted to mention that Matt Bates, our very own co-host at OnScript and co-founder, um, has a new book out called Gospel Allegiance, and this is uh, a book that, that is is aiming to um, kind of write at an accessible level what, what he did in his um, Salvation by, by Allegiance alone, um, but he, he has some new material in there as well. So it's uh, out by, uh, it's published by Brazos Press. And it's called Gospel Allegiance, What Faith in Jesus Misses for Salvation in Christ. So I just wanted to mention that, that that's just now available, I think. Um, So grab it wherever you get books. And uh, also, some of you have asked how you could help us out. So thank you for asking. Um, Actually, no one comes to us and just says that. But, uh, you know, that's the rhetorical device. Um, give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. So you could, you could do that right now. Even you could hit pause, you know, uh, you let, listen to that nagging sense of guilt, hit pause and give us a ratings. Um, actually it does have an impact. Um, and some people have asked how, um, like at family dinners and gatherings, how do I bring up on script, especially since my family has their heads buried in the sand, theologically speaking. Um, so here's one idea. Um, and you could get creative and think of others. L- let's say you're passing the food around and it's toward the beginning of the meal and you just things are just getting going. Say to the person next to you, but loud enough so that the table could he- hear, could you please pass me some on script? And you're likely to get a response from your, your out-of-touch family that goes something like, pass who script? And then say, oh, I guess my favorite podcast is just on my mind. OnScript. It's changed my life and could change yours too. OnScript.study. And, and see, so you, you, the, the trick in that is to make it a natural mistake, as if, as if you just slipped up and it's, it so occupies your mind that it just comes out. And then they're going to want to say, huh, I wonder what this thing is that intrigues him or her so much. And they're going to um, find out about us. So, it, you know, family, it's those family bonds. Um, or if you're around with close friends, you could you could do the same thing. If you have out-of-touch friends or maybe out-of-touch neighbors or um, out-of-touch, you know, church family, uh, ch- church members, you know, you, you get the idea. If you have out-of-touch people around you, help them get in touch with OnScript.study. Um, so you just make it natural. All right. Today you're going to hear from Matt Bates, who has as his guest, Joseph Gordon, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks for listening. Let's talk about Origen of Alexandria. Origen flourished in the early third century. He's one of the most creative and controversial theologians in Christian history, not least for his allegorical method of scriptural interpretation. Yet even Origen's interpretive efforts were circumscribed by the rule of faith, 
Origen gives a version of the rule of faith as follows. The kind of doctrines which we are believe, which are believed in plain terms through the apostolic teaching are the following. First, that God is one who created and set in order all things, and who, when nothing existed, caused the universe to be. He is God of all righteous men, and then Origen lists some of these righteous men. Jumping forward here. This God, Origen says, in these last days, according to the previous announcements made through his prophets, sent the Lord Jesus Christ, first for the purpose of calling Israel, and secondly, after the unbelief of the people of Israel, of calling the Gentiles also. This just and good God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, himself gave the law, the prophets, and the gospels, and he is God, both of the apostles and also of the Old and New Testaments." So says Origen of Alexandria. If the early Christians, even inventive ones such as Origen, deferred to the rule of faith in interpreting Scripture, should we do likewise today? If so, which version of it? Must it be reinterpreted for the modern world? And beyond all this, what is Scripture anyway? How does it fit into the broader Christian life? Hello, this is Matthew Bates, your host today for OnScript. Our guest today is Joseph K. Gordon. Joe has a new book out, Divine Scripture in Human Understanding, A Systematic Theology of the Christian Bible with the University of Notre Dame Press, 2019. Welcome to On Script, Joe. Thanks, Matt. Good to be here. Now, Joe, your book is, is well-written, exciting contribution, and whatever else it might be beyond that, it's certainly this. It's a very ambitious project, uh, especially as the origin of this project was a revised dissertation. So maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, but uh, it's certainly an ambitious project, and I commend you uh, for it. Um, w- one of the things that I want to sort of um, ask in light of that um, is, um, what is your book trying to accomplish as a whole? Um, you have a subtitle, A Systematic Theology of the Christian Bible. Can you just begin to locate your project for us? Yeah, uh, so it is, as you have noted, certainly ambitious. Um, the, the book, on the whole... Uh, is my attempt, uh, through my own uh, formation, uh, to give an account of the nature and purposes of Christian Scripture uh, that both addresses um, real achievements in Christian thinking in the past um, and can account for what we actually know about the history of of the Bible. Uh, It does not fall from heaven, but in fact uh, has a, a very fascinating history. Uh, So the question I seek to answer from, again, from one perspective is, uh, what is Christian scripture? Uh, What is it that makes it Christian scripture? Um, uh, Where does it come from? And um, what ought Christians do with it? Uh, That's that's the gist of, of the project, so... Yeah, I like how you you say you know that the the scripture didn't fall from heaven. Um, actually, when I was a, uh, I, I currently work at Quincy University, and um, when I was applying for my job here and doing my job talk, uh, it was a classroom job talk, so students were in there and whatnot. And uh, one of the things I did is um, I had a student come up and. Uh, I, I was walking. I said, I'm just going to walk by, and I just want you to just drop the Bible, right? And uh, so so I, I did this. I walked by, right, and the student just drops the Bible, and I say, oh, my gosh, like, here, this just fell down from heaven, right? Uh, like, thank you so much, God. Here's your word. And so I asked students, you know, what's wrong with this? 
um, what's wrong with this statement of, 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 that I'm making here? But what's the truth there also, right? Um, I kind of want to sort of like play both ends of that, right? You know, um, so that that was a good conversation starter for them. Um, but I think that that's something that really shines in your project is you take seriously the historical dimension of Christian scripture in trying to articulate a Christian theology. Um, so some of the some systematic theologies of of the Bible then. Um, if we could try to characterize what they're up to, they're mainly up to trying to arrange uh, topics in the Bible uh, about certain things. Like if you open, let's just say, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, right? Now, mainly what he's doing is he's trying to say, okay, well, we need to have a doctrine of God. Let's like arrange everything we can find that the Bible says about God and uh, like try to coordinate all that somehow and, um, and create subtopics. And that's how we do systematic theology. Um, is uh, kind of a topical, almost proof text. Uh, that's a little harsh. Sometimes it can be proof text. Other times it's good contextual reading. But uh, it's it's an attempt to kind of take these little, little top away and to arrange them, right? How is your project different from that? Well, um, so that uh, what you've just described is a, is a very common uh, approach. Uh, it could be uh, labeled biblical theology or theology of the Bible. The question is, uh, what does uh, Scripture say about the character of God, the work of God? So we have this topic set aside, and our sole focus would be to, you know, arrange uh, the text, to understand the text with reference to this question. Um, and so uh, so on for things like Christology, who is, who is Jesus, what has he done? Uh, pneumatology, uh, who is the Holy Spirit, what has the Spirit done? And um, then, then all the other topics, uh, ecclesiology, doctrine of the church, uh, eschatology, last things, judgment, etc. Um, my book is, is emphatically not that. Um, and it's not that I uh, don't, don't think those things are valuable. Um, my question's much more restricted. Um, uh, it's a question about what it is that Christians believe about the Bible itself, about Scripture itself. Um, so, uh, I, and I understand systematic theology in, in, in a different way as well. Uh, for me, systematics is, uh, is the attempt to give an understanding of any particular Christian doctrine uh, that, again, both draws on the real achievements in Christian thinking of the past and addresses uh, any, any new contemporary uh, concerns that have, have arisen. So, uh, so a systematics uh, for me would be uh, more focused on a specific doctrine, like the triunity of God. Uh, that treat and that treatise would not collect the biblical data and arrange them and, and provide an understanding of them. It would instead ask the question: uh, Given that Christians believe God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what in the world could that possibly mean? And this is a, this is a confession. You know, if you confess the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, uh, you confess faith in this God. Uh, confessing is one thing, understanding is, is another. Uh, and likewise for Christology. Um, you know, in, in a lot of Christian traditions, um, you enter into Christian faith through a, a confession. Uh, for my folks in, in the Christian churches and churches of Christ, it's through baptism. And you confess, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, well, okay, you confess that. What in the world could that possibly mean? That's what systematics does. 
Uh, but you can ask those same kinds of questions about Scripture. Uh, the Bible is the Word of God. Okay, what does that mean? The Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? Uh, scripture is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. Uh, okay, what does that mean? Systematics provides a way of answering those sorts of questions. Given that you confess this, um, okay, well, let's, let's explore that. Let's, let's consider that. Let's seek to understand that. So my book is just restricted to uh, doctrines about Scripture. Uh, what is the Bible? Where is it located in God's work? Um, it's written by human beings, uh, you know, granted, Christians hold, uh, as I do. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it's still written by human beings. So you might need an understanding of what a human person is uh, that could, could be a, a conduit of divine inspiration and what we are as human readers that can then take up the text and understand it. Uh, so I located in uh, and relative to an understanding of human nature, human persons and community historically. Um, and so the, the focus is just on doctrines about Scripture. Uh, it's not, it is ambitious, but I don't intend to give a systematic theology of the Trinity, of Christology, of pneumatology. It's just a systematics of the nature and purpose of the Christian Bible. What is this? So, yeah. Yeah. That's um that's really helpful and I, I think that it um is is even that right is a very ambitious project and and a commendable one that I think more work needs to be done on. I mean, think of the, the late John Webster has, has written a fine book on um, trying to locate scripture uh, theologically in, a, in the kind of way you're doing, uh, and you're in conversation with him some and and with some others. Um, I also like how you sort of teed me up uh, for the rest of the interview as uh, your book certainly works toward answering those questions in the end. What do we mean by inspiration? What do we mean by authority? Uh, so we'll be circling back to. Um, to probe how you answer that uh, toward the end of, end of the interview. <laughs> Let me go ahead and um, tell listeners a little bit more about you. Uh, Joseph K. Gordon is Associate Professor of Theology at Johnson University in Knoxville, Tennessee. So he's actually colleagues with Rafael Rodriguez, uh, who uh, we had on OnScript recently for his Jesus Darkly. Uh, uh, Joe's research and theological reflection uh, focuses on questions about the history, nature, and purposes of Christian scripture, on theological anthropology, and on theologies of history. Divine Scripture and Human Understanding is his first book. Uh, he's also published articles in Theological Studies, uh, Nova et Vetera, and a bunch of other journals. He's currently writing an introduction to the life and thought of Bernard, Bernard Lonergan. We're going to get into that a little bit more uh, for the Cascade Companion series. Uh, and he's an amateur naturalist and herpetologist. Um, that sounds like you study some kind of diseases, but I'm pretty yeah. sure that's, re that's reptiles, right? Yeah, uh, reptiles and amphibians, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, you play floor hockey uh, and soccer uh, with your uh, uh, students, and you enjoy spending time with your wife and your one-year-old old son. Thanks, Joe. Um, so there are, if I'm, I'm kind of asking, you know, as we kick things off here, some macro, um, you know, sort of things about your project. Um, and one of the drums you certainly repeatedly beat, beat in the book is um, that ideas uh, have dates or concepts have dates um, and that we have to pay attention to historical development and successfully integrate it theologically. Um, we've already alluded to that, but I want to see if you can unpack that a little bit further for us. It's a, it's, a, it's a theme that comes again and again. Why is this so important for us to do? Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a really 
fundamentally important question. Uh, I tell my students all the time uh, these things. Ideas have dates. uh, Language has dates. Concepts have dates. uh, And we have to pay attention to to these uh, realities to understand uh, any anything in in history uh, well, and uh, this is this is a lesson that um, historical critical biblical scholarship uh, exhibits and teaches us over and over and over again. Um, we see the fruit of it uh, whenever we consider uh, developments in thinking and understanding in Second Temple Judaism, for instance, uh, in the New Testament. Uh, we find uh, that we can better understand. Uh, these texts whenever we consider them in their ancient contexts of meaning. Um, and the same is true of the development of, of doctrine, so to speak, uh, or the development of Christian understanding. Um, so uh, for folks who have studied uh, the, the Church Fathers uh, and the development of Trinitarian theology, you know that various Church Fathers uh, use different language than they find in the New and Old Testaments uh, as they're asking questions about what it means that God uh, God the Father sends his Son and pours out his Spirit in all flesh. They can find that kind of confessional language in the New Testament, um, but not in even the way that I just used it. Um, it's scattered in various places, uh, and so just bringing that language together is a development. But then whenever you get to uh, Athanasius, for instance, in the 4th century, uh, he, he uses this non-biblical word, homoousios, to talk about the son's nature. The son is homoousios, of the same nature with the father. Um, and he didn't like that he used a non-biblical word. Uh, he didn't want to use a non-biblical word to do that. But he found it necessary because the question of who Jesus was, Jesus' nature, required him to to have a nuanced, careful way of talking about Jesus. If Jesus was not divine for Athanasius, then he couldn't save us. Um, So uh, we we need to pay attention to these developments, to this new language. Um, I have a good friend uh, who was in the doctoral program at Marquette with. His name is uh, Stephen Wares. Uh, he, he's a patristic scholar, and he, he sometimes refers to systematic theologians as systemagicians. Um, systemagicians make up new things, you know, uh, whereas historical theologians and biblical scholars uh, pay attention to texts, like they actually deal with the realities that are there, like the data that's there. Um, and, um, you know, sometimes maybe systematic theologians have been system magicians and have made up things not well. Um, but uh, human beings make up new language, develop new language, develop new ways of speaking, uh, because questions require new language and new ways of speaking. Um, and so uh, that's what uh, that's what I'm emphasizing. Whatever I'm I'm saying. That. What, what are the new ways of speaking that, um, that we see in the early history of the church? Uh, we have to pay attention to that language to really understand it in its context and to understand what kinds of commitments it requires of, of us uh, to really, uh, you know, to confess the creeds, for instance. Uh, so 
that's that 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 gives a a, a little bit uh, on on how uh, how I use that why I use that language so much. So, Joe, you choose two primary interlocutors uh, that are your two primary interlocutors that are your um, conversation partners that appear throughout your work: uh, Bernard Lonergan and Henry Day Lubach. Um, Let's start with Lonergan. I'm wondering a little bit more why these conversation partners were so important to you. Um, Lonergan's a giant in some circles, right? Everybody knows Lonergan, uh, especially in certain Catholic uh, circles, um, but he's totally unknown in others. If, if pastors have heard of him that are, are you know, not of uh, that persuasion, it's perhaps because um, N.T. Wright drew on Ben Meyer, who mm-hmm. drew on he Lonergan. Drew on Lonergan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so... Uh, and he's important uh, in Wright's articulation, ultimately, of critical realism via Ben Meyer. Um, so uh, he's often described, at least I've heard him described, as a transcendental Thomist. Um, tell us more about Lonergan. You're writing a companion on him anyway right now. You probably know a ton about him. Um, and uh, why he's such a helpful conversation partner for those of us who want to think through the meta question, what is scripture anyway, right? The, the huge question. We know it's important. Oh, what is it? What is it? Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, how much time do you have for me to talk about uh-huh. I'm actually, you know, I, I have to restrain myself, but, um, uh, you know, it, it's a good question. Uh, Lonergan was not a scripture scholar, um, and, uh, in fact, he, he personally did not give um, that much of his own attention to the kinds of questions that I'm asking and answering in, in my own book. Um, so why, why would I use him? Why would I draw on him? Well... Um, so, I mean, I could give you a whole personal, uh, biography of my intellectual formation. I won't do that. Uh, but, but the short of it is that, um, he, uh, in his, uh, one of his famous books, the two famous ones are Insight and Method and Theology. And the second one, Method and Theology, um, he gives a really helpful, uh, for, for me and for, for many other folks in the Theological Academy, uh, account of what it is that uh, theologians are doing when they're doing theology, uh, and why it is that that what results from that work is knowledge, uh, is is theological knowledge, and um, so in method in theology he uh, he differentiates a number of tasks that theologians do, um, and uh, one of the tasks is systematic theology. Um, it's one of the later tasks in, in, in the number of differentiations he gives, but um, it really provides a, um, a helpful way of thinking about uh, what it is that uh, Christians need to do intellectually to be both responsible and faithful at our own time in history. Um, so... Uh, Christians, again, have confessed things like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed for centuries. Um, and the words of those remain the same after they are developed, after they become what they are. Uh, but it's one thing, again, to confess those and another thing to understand what they could possibly mean. Uh, and so Lonergan helps uh, me, at least, to think about uh what it would take to understand the, the creeds and understand confession of the creeds today. Um, 
He also is helpful for understanding what biblical scholars are, are up to. The first four, uh, what he calls functional specialties, uh, have to do with the, the work of understanding the past. Uh, and so they're relevant to understanding Scripture in its native contexts. Uh, they're they're re- uh, relevant to understanding developments and changes uh, that we see in Scripture. Right, you can see historical development in in the texts. Now, I don't, uh, I'm not advocating for any particular like understanding of the documentary hypothesis for the Pentateuch, or or for the synoptic problem for the Gospels, or for um, you know the, the development of theology in the New Testament. But there is development there um, because there are different times and places where those texts emerge, and they're not all at the same time. Um, And so, again, Lonergan can help think through those different questions uh, in a critically realist kind of way. Uh, Use use that language that Wright uses. Wright gets it, as you noted, from Ben F. Meyer, uh, and Meyer gets it from from Lonergan. Lonergan is is a critical realist. Um, You've heard him called a transcendental Thomist. Uh, He did not care for that label. Um, and, uh, he, uh, uh, he would describe himself, uh, as a methodologist, uh, or as a critical realist. Well, let's go to De Lubach then, um, who's your other conversation partner. And he's probably most famous for his study of, you know, um, medieval exegesis and of, um, you know, the four senses of scripture that, that were prominent during that and doing a lot of work to kind of um, think about the history of biblical interpretation down through the ages. Um, why was he an important conversation partner for you to bring in? Right. So uh, I actually have to start with Lonergan again to explain De Lubach's relevance to the, to the project. So, uh, again, for Lonergan, systematics is an understanding of doctrines. Um, The doctrines can be about any number of different uh, things in Christian faith. So I've mentioned doctrine of God's uh, unity and threeness, uh, doctrine of God's oneness or providence, uh, doctrines about Christ, Christology. Uh, But there are also doctrines about Scripture, Christians believe certain things about Scripture. Uh, We hold certain things to be true about it, Uh, that it is the Word of God written, Uh, that it is inspired by the Holy Spirit, that it is useful uh, for uh, formation and transformation in in Christian life and in Christian community. Um, So de Lubach's work for me, uh, which I read uh, late in seminary and then read throughout my doctoral program and since then, uh, in those works on medieval exegesis and origin uh, is a really uh, brilliant and profound examination of uh, the ways that early Christians uh, lived and expressed those doctrines, that scripture is the word of God written, that it is inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, that it is useful for for Christian life. Uh, so, uh, De Lubach's influence is a little bit more subterranean in the book than Lonergan's. Yeah, but if you if you look at the if you look at the uh, the, the research and the footnotes, uh, and if you look at a number of key junctures in the argument, uh, De Lubach's work is is right there. Um, De Lubach recovers Christian kind of convictions about Scripture um, and uh, profound expressions of them in the work of 
Origen and Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and a variety of, of other medieval figures um, that are really profound and, and compelling, that can enrich contemporary Christians thinking about what the Bible is. Um, and so De Lubach informs the doctrinal uh, aspects of, of the work very much. Well, um, why don't we jump to a speed round? Uh, and uh, that was sort of the end of my large-scale questions about your project. Most of my other questions had to do with some chapter or sequence, you know, kinds of questions and details we find there. So with the speed rounds, uh, here's the deal. I'm going to ask you a question. You you just have to answer off the cuff. Uh, you you don't get to defend your response. You just tell us. You just tell us what you think. Um, all right. So first one. Uh, what's a trend in society that scares you? A trend in society that scares me. Man, I'm going to be terrible at this. Uh, the the way that people are unable to unplug from social media. Yeah, you're not addiction to social media. Yeah, you're not the first person who said that. Uh, that's that's one that I've heard before. Um, do you believe in aliens? Do I believe in aliens? Um, I'm agnostic about the existence of, of aliens. All right. Have you ever driven a motorcycle? No, I have not. What's something you find embarrassing? Something I find embarrassing? Um, I really am not embarrassed by anything that I can, can think of off the top of my head. My wife would also corroborate what I've just... <laughs> You're not embarrassed enough. That's yeah, the problem. Yeah, You're yeah. probably doing awkward things all the time and you don't even notice. Yeah. Um, okay, that's good. Uh, what's the most important theology or biblical studies book of the last 50 years? Uh, of the last 50 years, I would say Method and Theology. We're just Ooh. just in there, so... 1972. Uh, okay. Three more years, that, that's relevant. I think you're the first person who's given that book. I mean, there's a, definitely a list of books that show up again and again and again. I think you're our first to give us Lonergan's Method and Theology. Not his insight, though, but his Method and Theology thinks well, more important. Method is more important anyway, but insight is too old. It's not. Oh, yeah. okay. All right. Um, all right. So if you were to complete a PhD in a field outside theology, history, or religion, what would the field be? It would be uh, it would be biology, definitely herpetology. Yeah, you got to no question about that. Yeah, you got to inspect those reptiles a little bit more, huh? Yes, I do. Okay, all right, I'll leave them to you. I'm not into reptiles. Um, yeah, they, they, yeah, I mean they're cool. I get it. I mean, but um, yeah, they're cool to look at from a distance, not really to touch and play with. I don't know. Yeah, I know. I caught a lot of lizards and snakes when I was a kid, but um, yeah, now I usually just defer and let my kids catch them and <laughs> keep my distance. Um, all right, well, let's jump back into it then. Um, and your chapter two then is focused on the rule of faith. And uh, it's, I think, an exciting and interesting chapter um, as uh, even just walking through some of the data in the early church fathers on the rule of faith, I think, is interesting. So you cover Irenaeus, Origen, and, and Augustine. Um, why was this the place that you um, felt was necessary to begin your project um, and if you want to comment in any way on um, on that angle, but also on anything that you thought was an interesting development, you do trace some development, or um, or at least different emphases. I think that's better to say, not really development necessarily in the understanding of the rule of faith, but um, different emphases between our authors. Um, so uh, this is a pretty open ended question. Um, but why did you begin with the rule of faith, and anything you want to add further? Yeah. So um, I, I began with the rule of faith because. Um, 
the early church begins with the rule of faith when it interprets scripture. Um, now, not with any particular rule of faith, as you note, and as I note, it, the rule of faith uh, is expressed differently by the different authors that I've chosen. But the church is never without a rule of faith. Um, the, the earliest Christians interpret the ancient Jewish scriptures, we, we know as the Old Testament, through their experiences of Christ's teaching um, and through their convictions about who, who Jesus Christ was, uh, through their convictions about God's work through the Holy Spirit uh, at Pentecost and in, in the early church, um, they didn't just pick up the Old Testament and ask, what does it say? Uh, they, they, had, they had these convictions about God's work, and they're uh, really striking, shocking, in fact. And um, they condition uh, how they engage the, the text. And, and, you know, of course, you've done a lot of work on this in, um, in Paul's uh, exegesis. Yeah, you're certainly preaching to the choir here. Yeah, right. I, I exactly. Like the, I like the angle you're taking here. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that's just uh, that's just where the church starts when it reads scripture throughout its history from the very beginnings. Um, so, you know, in in our contemporary setting, uh, Bible-centered uh, Christians, especially Protestant ones, uh, throw around the language of the Bible says, or the Bible says X, Y, or Z about A, B, or C issue. Um, and I want to uh, I want to push back. I do, in fact, push back against that language very strongly, because I think it hides from us uh, convictions we have about Scripture um, that are not scriptural, uh, that, that 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 can't be defended, uh, strictly speaking, uh, through an appeal to what the words are on the page. Um, and that's okay for me, uh, because Christian understanding develops, and when I say development, I mean it, it, it moves forward, it advances. Um, and so um, the early church starts with a rule of faith, that convictions about Christ and the Spirit when it reads the ancient Jewish text. And the early church's uh, convictions develop in the rule of faith and eventually um, in, in the creeds. And um, uh, and so, in order to understand Christian faith, we need to understand those developing convictions. So the rule of faith chapter is not a systematic chapter. It's it's uh, it's there uh, to kind of uh, to, to to lay out the data, uh, just to walk through the data and to ask what are these folks doing whenever they invoke the rule of faith whenever they're interpreting scripture? What is Irenaeus doing in, against heresies whenever he invokes the rule of faith? What is Origen doing in, on first principles whenever he starts with the rule of faith? And then he goes on to do all this fascinating speculation throughout the rest of the book. What is Augustine doing whenever he invokes the rule of faith and doesn't even name the contents of it? Um, and then he, he goes off on this uh, this. Uh, adventure in on teaching Christianity or De Doctrina Christiana, he talks about what scriptural interpretation requires. He starts with the rule of faith. He doesn't even say what it is, and then he talks about the interpretation of scripture. So uh, each of them is invoking the rule of faith, invoking Christian faith, and then moving on to talk about 
what Christian faith is and the place of scripture and scriptural interpretation in Christian faith. And that provides a, an example for my own book. Um, the, next, the next chapter doesn't say what the Bible says. It moves on to give a, an account of God's work in history. The chapter after that gives an account of human persons in history. Um, so uh, they interpret within this context um, and so I engage scripture as well within this context. And mm. here's the precedent. That chapter is about the precedent mm-hmm. in the work. So kind of pressing in a little bit more to, you know, this this language of um, maybe saying when the Bible says X, Y, or Z, that, that's problematic because it might mask some of our assumptions. Certainly that's true. Um, do you think the situation with regard to the rule of faith differs a little bit between the Old and the New Testaments? Um, is it it, we can get into chicken and egg kind of arguments or conversations about which comes first, the rule of faith or the scripture, but um, obviously the final canonical form of scripture we don't have yet. Um, you know, we have the apostolic preaching, um, which is, it seems, something that is quite close to uh, the rule of faith. On the way to the is, rule of faith, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. and so there's some sort of dialectic, it would seem, um, between the rule of faith and the emergence of the New Testament that's different from different from the old, right? When we're reading the proto-creeds in, in Paul, right, when he says that, you know, Christ died, you know, for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that accordance with the Scripture, obviously referring to the Old Testament, right? And um, But when we come to the New, it would seem that um, that because they're informed by the apostolic preaching and they have the rule of faith, at least in a preliminary form in place, um, that maybe changes. Um, I don't know. Anything you want to add there? I'm, I'm just thinking through this with you. And, um, uh, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, one thing that's really important to note um, is that the rule of faith is, uh, is not there in, in the New Testament. That language of regula, uh, Paul uses that language uh, a couple times in, in 1 Corinthians and once in, in Galatians. But he doesn't give a list of beliefs like Irenaeus does, uh, like Clement of Alexandria or, or, or Origen or any of these later folks. Uh, but Christian faith is present there, um, and Christian faith is uh, is earlier than Scripture. So you, you mentioned, well, we're in a different situation with the Old Testament, and we are. Uh, but as I uh, note in, in chapter 5, um, the question of the boundaries of the ancient Jewish Scriptures, the Old Testament, uh, I, I cannot see it as a closed uh, collection in the first century uh, for a number of different reasons. One is that the data, I just don't think, bears that out. Right, so when Paul says Christ died in accordance with the scriptures, what is he talking about? He's not talking about a 39-book Old Testament that's a codex sitting in a synagogue somewhere, uh, because codex technology is not even uh, used uh, in the first century widely. Right. So what is what is he talking about? Um, uh, and uh, and and as as you know, uh, the early Christians uh, draw on a broader collection of of texts than what uh, Protestants recognize as as the, the Old Testament and even broader than uh, than Catholics and, and Orthodox and folks who accept apocryphal books accept as 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 scripture. Right, so um, what comes first, scripture or the rule of faith? Well, um, 
They're both there at the very beginning. But the question, what is scripture, doesn't have a definitive answer. The question, what is the rule of faith, doesn't have a definitive answer. Uh, Because recognition of both of those things and understanding of both of those things is moving. Um, and so what I'm what I'm doing is 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 really highlighting highlighting that. Um, but for a Christian, I, I do argue. Um, I think that this is this has to be the case. Christian faith uh, precedes the recognition of of Scripture as Scripture. Um, it it comes it comes first. Yeah, you might. In the two testament form, you mean because obviously they have the Jewish scripture that they're recognizing and and you know seeing themselves in continuity with, right? Right. Well, as a two well, for us, yes, but also um, as a defined, bounded uh, 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 collection, right? So uh, Stephen Chapman has talked about core canon, um, which I like because uh, I think it helps helps get at the at some of the the messiness of the dynamic, but. Right, so for Paul, obviously, Scripture would have included uh, the the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It would have included the Psalms, but which which collection uh, would have included the prophets? But what was included in the prophets? Right, so um, so for the for the earliest Christians, Scripture is is historically earlier than Christianity, um, but in Christian faith. Um, their reading has to be inescapably shaped by their faith. Sure, sure. Yeah, I like that language of core canon. Is there's certainly a centrality or a core to both the rule of faith and to scripture that um, that allows it still to function practically for um, for the early church, even if they don't have clear boundaries around those things that are um, precise in ways that might make us happy today. Um, let's let's jump to your next chapter, uh, which uh, in your third chapter you really um, are, I think, trying to show how Scripture has to fit into the triune life of the God as God has revealed Himself in the economy of history as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, so, yeah, speak to that uh, a little bit more. Like, why? Um, uh, obviously, I think that there, there's a certain kind of truism there. Of course, Scripture must fit within the unfolding divine economy. Um, uh, what's the practical payoff in terms of the logic of your project of of showing uh, the utility of that? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so in systematics, you start with what's most general and then move to the specific. Um, so... Uh, it, it, it just makes good sense to start with God. Um, God does not have a context. Everything uh, that is in creation, uh, including scripture, is located in God, God's work and in what God has done. So just by the nature of the project, that's where, where I, I had to start. Uh, but what's the practical payoff? Well, um, I, I the, the chapter is roughly structured in a Trinitarian way. Um, I start with reflections on God's creative work. Um, and this, this section is actually quite important um, because I give a, a way of thinking about God's creative work where God's action in history is not in competition with human action. Um, 
uh, it's it's quite common for for folks in the pews and even a number of of modern theological thinkers to see God's work as being in opposition to yeah. uh, human work. Yeah, it's not a zero sum game. <laughs> right, it's yeah. not. Um, God's causation is is transcendent. Um, so uh, you know, I, I I offer an account of divine providence. Um, wherein I hold that God operates, God acts in every created action, whether it is a natural action or a voluntary one. Um, God, uh, God acts. Um, you know, in, in evangelical context, it's common for people to talk about God not being able to be in the presence of sin, God turning his face away from us if, if we're sinning. Uh, if God turned his face away from us, and that language is analogical and has its own challenges, we would cease to exist. Um, God holds us in being, in all of our action, every action in creation uh, takes place because God calls creation into being and sustains it in being. And this is really important for thinking about Scripture, because uh, if you study Scripture carefully, if you pay attention to these historical questions that we've already raised, you notice that God does not override the humanity of the biblical authors. Um, they all write in their own ways, in their own times, under the conditions of their, their space and time. Um, and that doesn't mean God can't speak through them. God, in fact, does. Um, but God doesn't impose himself on them in a competitive way and kind of flatten out their freedom. Right, so the Book of Revelation is full of grammatical issues, uh, errors. You know that kind of language sets off alarms for folks, but um, it's not really great Greek. Uh, God does not override uh, John the Seer's uh, uh, mind to make him write in perfect Greek. Um, you know, it's uh, Scripture is for uh, for any Christian group is originally in three languages. Hebrew, Aramaic, and, and Koine Greek. But if you compare the Koine Greek of, of Luke to uh, the Johannine author or authors, you notice that John's Greek is like fourth grade Greek. Luke is like really a lot more advanced. Um, and all that kind of variety is, is there, and God doesn't flatten it out. Um, our English translations often flatten it out. Um, but so this this way of thinking about God's action allows for us to affirm that God can be acting for for and through the authors, but also not squelch their humanity. So that's where it starts. That's just one one payoff. Sure. Oh, so yeah, that's a huge yeah a huge huge topic, right? The the, the topic of how divine causality interfaces with human causality is um, you know one of those classic chestnuts. Um, that you know, there's a variety of opinions about certainly uh, among uh, different theologians. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to follow up on another question. You know, in that chapter though, um, that has to do with the economic work of the Triune God. And one of the things that interested me was um, your your you follow uh, uh, Balthazar uh, at least somewhat in wanting to argue that the mission of the uh, of the uh, Holy Spirit actually is prior to the mission of the Son. Um, and that was just something that kind of grabbed my attention. Um, why is that important, especially for a theology of Scripture? Right. Uh, 
Well, um, it's a great it's a great question. So uh, there are different ways to talk about the priority of the Spirit's work, but with reference to the text of Scripture, um, the incarnation of the Son is through the the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, the Spirit uh, settles on on Mary, and the Son is 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 you know divinely conceived uh, through that. Um, even in Jesus' ministry, uh, the Spirit is the one who moves him in his in his ministry. Uh, so there's a uh, there's a priority of the Spirit's work relative to Jesus, the incarnate Lord. Um, and I don't want to push it, the the temporal priority too much, um, because uh, again, with the account of providence I I give, uh, and it's a it's a classical one. I'm not making making it up. Um, all the Father, Son, and the Spirit are all operate, all act in, in the economy in, in, simultaneously. Um, but there's another relevance to the Spirit's priority for us personally. Um, nobody can declare Christ as Lord except through the Spirit, right? Even our, you know, and thinking about like Christian conversion, somebody uh, moving from outside the faith into to becoming Christian, becoming a member of a, of a uh, of the Christian community. Uh, the Spirit is the one that does that saving work that brings us into the community. How is it that we really can understand anything about the incarnate Lord who lived 2,000 years ago? Um, how is it that Christ's work back then and there impacts you and me here and now? Um, well, it does so through hearing the gospel. It does so through our understanding of who Christ is. Um, but how do we hear it? And how do we understand it? How, how does one personally do that? Well, it's through the, the Spirit's work. If we understand, it's, it's God doing the work in us. Um, and so, um, again, uh, uh, the, the work of, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is inseparable, and it's not competitive. Um, and, uh, and the triune God is doing the work any time, any place, anywhere God is doing that redemptive work. Um, but in, in a certain sense, we, um, we have access to it through, through the Spirit. The Spirit brings us into relationship and life with the Son, and the Son leads us to the Father's, a classical way of, 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 of thinking about that. Um, but, but real quick, um, the, the payoff for talking about the Spirit's work and the Son's work is those doctrinal claims about Scripture. Scripture is the written Word of God. Now, sometimes we just call it the Word of God, but that's not the only referent for that language, right? Uh, we use the Word of God more primarily to refer to Jesus Christ, uh, to the Son. Um, and so you need to know something about the Son in order to understand how Scripture can also be Word of God written. So Scripture has to be related to the Son. Um, we say Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Well, you probably should know something about what the Holy Spirit is in the business of doing. Um, and uh, when you do that, then you can understand how Scripture fits into that characteristic economic work. So that, that's why that, that chapter uh, on, on God as Father, Son, and Spirit uh, has priority. So we can know how God works relative to the authors of Scripture. Uh, so we can know something about 
what it means to call Scripture the Word of God, and so we can know uh, what this conviction of it being inspired by the Spirit might might mean. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> that's helpful. I do think that, um, yeah, certainly one of the payoffs, as you mentioned, is that, um, you know, the, of the Holy Spirit's prior action to the sons and the economy of God, um, even though we can't separate those ultimately, right, would be to think about the fact that the Scripture is given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that happens before the visible, at least, uh, incarnation of the Son. I mean, we we could get into interesting conversations about, you know, um, second-century doctrine of Logos Spermaticos, that the the Word of God is, you know, as Christ incarnate, you know, a pre-incarnate is present everywhere in creation, and so on and so forth. But, yeah, that would probably take us too far astray. Um, How about, uh, let's jump to... um, um, your fourth chapter, and I'm going to actually kind of use it as an opportunity to ask a big question. Um, as um, one of the one of the, the 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 most popular and common ways to talk about scriptures, to use the incarnational analogy, right? That just as Jesus is the divine human one, um, so also scripture is divine and human at the same time. Um, I think we would all agree that there are strengths to that analogy, but there are also some limitations. Um, if if you're whenever you hear somebody as somebody who's worked intensely on doctrine of of, of what scripture is, whenever you hear somebody make the incarnational analogy. Um, what are what are some of the critiques that are going on in your mind? Um, I think that the strengths of it are, are fairly obvious, right? Um, yeah. What what are some of the low limitations of the incarnational analogy? Well, the 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 key critique I have is it's just not um, it's just not often deployed in a nuanced enough way for for me. Um, I, I like John. I'm, I'll defer to John Webster on this, um, and I do in the in the book. In fact. Um, uh, the Bible is not God. It's, it's scripture is not a member of the, of the Trinity, right? So we use this language word of God to refer to it. Um, but we also use that language to refer to, to, to Jesus, uh, to, to the son of God. One of these is God, fully God, homoousios with the father and the spirit. And the other is not, it's the other is a book. Um, and it's created, um, and it's not just created, it's, it's set apart by the Spirit uh, uh, and the Son and the Father for God's redemptive work. But it is a creation. The Son is not a creation. Right? So I've, I've heard, in Bible-centered context, I've heard people quote the prologue of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And they refer that, they think that the referent is the Bible. And that's blasphemy. That, that that is idolatry. If you um, if you put something in God's place that's not actually God, you know the authors of Scripture have a word for that. The, the word is idolatry. <laughs> Don't do that. It's bad. Do yeah. that. <laughs> sure. Scripture. Whatever. Oh, yeah, uh, I can't help but interrupt you because I have a story. Uh, but whenever I was, you know, uh, growing up, I went to a, a very, you know, traditional church growing up. And uh, every morning before Sunday school started, we would sing the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I'll stand. You know, um, you know, and on the one hand, we could just see that as a rallying cry to all get behind the Bible. But on the other hand, whenever all the rest of the songs you sing are praise of God, um, there's a little bit of slippage there, you know, um, that seems like it's putting the Bible in a place that is just a little dangerous, right, in retrospect. Yeah. No, yeah. It, and, and Scripture has symbolic authority 
Um, and it, it is uh, it is an absolute symbolic authority for, for so many Christians. And it does have authority. It does have the authority of God even. Um, but this is why that language the Bible says is so dangerous. Um, you know, it's been invoked throughout Christian history to justify all kinds of things that have nothing to do with the work of God. Um, slavery, for instance, chattel slavery in the United States. Um, it's been invoked to uh, to justify um, uh, abuses against women, denial of, of women's full humanity. Um, it's been invoked to justify um, colonization, slaughter of, of native peoples. Um, and uh, these, these things are horrific, and God does not authorize these things. Human beings have sinfully invoked the authority of God uh, through appealing to Scripture uh, to justify these things. But that's, that has nothing to do with God's actual authority. Um, and, um, and, and so uh, I, I, I appeal for folks to, to, to be more careful um, Right. One is God, the other is not. Uh, the Son is, 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 is fully God. As God is the Father is God. As God is the Spirit is God. Scripture is, is divinely inspired, but it is not God. It is a book. Um, so... Well, all right. Uh, we're going to have to just, I always have too many questions. We're going to have to jump forward a little bit. I want to, let's squeeze in one more speed round. And then I got a couple wrap up questions that I think are good ones to kind of bring this home. Uh, so you ready for another speed round? Okay. So here's your question. Uh, technology, uh, is it friend or foe? Um, it's foe because of our, uh, malformed, uh, ways that our culture malforms us. But it can be friend. Gotcha. I I thought for sure you were going to say uh, it's foe because uh, we had the technological difficulties when we were trying to start our our conversation today. Um, but uh, yeah, no, that's probably a, a better generalization. Um, uh, got it. All right. So uh, next, uh, so do you ever uh, uh, sing in the shower? I actually don't really. You never sing in the shower. Um, no, I'm I'm silent, silent in thinking. Well, you're gonna you're ruining my next question because I was certain you were gonna say yes, and then I was gonna ask you, <laughs> will you sing a song for me right now on the spot? Uh, do you have a song you're gonna sing for me right now? Uh, yeah, I will. Uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. All right, that's beautiful, and Carl Bart uh, very much approves. Yeah, right? uh, but, you've just you just summarized all theology for us. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's great. Uh, but the way the Bible does so is is very careful and nuanced. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, the scariest thing about growing older is? Oh, uh, ha having and raising a, a, a child. Yeah. There is something that's sobering about that, right? Uh, whenever you have that first one in your arms, you're like, wow, I better not screw this up now. It's God's, God's uh, plan for our long-term sanctification is having these children because uh, it does really, it does really uh, yeah, force our hand. All right, well, let's, let's go back to, uh, to a couple uh, last uh, questions. I wanted to make sure we, we got to these because I felt like you were driving toward these in your, in your book, and, and we, we kind of alluded to them at the beginning, um, that obviously we have statements in Scripture that Scripture is inspired, that Scripture is uh, useful and profitable, um, and we, we have clear uh, indications that it's authoritative for us as well. Let's talk about each one of those words. As you have worked on these projects, 
Um, what is it that you want to say about um, whenever you hear someone say, well, Scripture is inspired? Um, how do you want to tease that out further when someone yeah. says Scripture is inspired? It's a great question. Well, if the Holy Spirit works to inspire Scripture um, and works on behalf of us engaging inspired Scripture to hear and discern what the Spirit is up to, we, we should ask, well, what is the Spirit characteristically doing? Um, and uh, this is this is why I locate inspiration relative to the mission of the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit intend? Well, the Holy Spirit uh, intends to lead us to Christ. I'll say more about that when we talk about that language of authority in just a moment. Um, the, the Spirit intends to convict us of, of sin. Um, you know, folks invoke the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to justify their sinful behavior. Um, and, you know, I, I echo Augustine. If you think that Scripture uh, is orienting you to not love God and not love your neighbor, try again. You've got it wrong. You've not understood it. You don't know what the Holy Spirit is up to. But what kind of, uh, what kind of things does the Holy Spirit do in people's lives when we actually let the Spirit work? The Spirit bears fruit, uh, the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Uh, if you're invoking Scripture, if you're invoking the inspiration and authority of Scripture to justify things that are the opposite of that, uh, that, that, are, that do not accord with those virtues, um, you're doing it wrong. Um, uh, if you're using Scripture... Uh, solely to point out uh, what you think are the, 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 uh, the flaws or the sins of, of others, you may be right um, in, in part, um, but it, it exists to bring you to, to repentance, convict you of, of your sin, to turn you away from the ways in which you're, uh, you have not been, been transformed to have the mind of Christ. It leads you to the Son, uh, it leads you to, to, to look like the sun. Um, and um, so, yeah, yeah, so that's what it's for. So it sounds like for you then that the, the, the ultimate good of inspiration then is connected very much to the character of the spirit and the spirit's purposes in our lives that we tend to abstract away from that in dangerous ways. Um, all right. How about, um, how about you move to uh, profitable and authoritative whenever we talk about that language of uh, Ophelimos, if I'm remembering right off the top of my head. Um, and what, what, what do we mean when we say that Scripture is profitable when Scripture is authoritative for us? Yeah, well, I'll start with authoritative because that last chapter um, uh, moves through the three doctrines, starting with inspiration, um, locating inspiration in the work of the Holy Spirit. Then the next one is locating uh, scripture relative to the mission of the Son of God. And that's where I talk about authority. Um, any authority that Scripture has for God's work is derivative. Um, it does not have some sort of absolute authority that's separate from God's authority. Uh, this is a point that N.T. Wright makes um, in, the, in that book uh, uh, on the authority of Scripture, the authority of God. Um, and I think that we can really understand this best whenever we consider uh, Scripture in the mission of, of the Son of God. Uh, what kind of authority does Jesus have? Well, 
um, you know, in, in, in uh, at the end of Matthew's gospel, what's known as the Great Commission, um, uh, Jesus declares uh, through, through the evangelist uh, to us, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Um, not all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Bible. Um, scripture's authority uh, is connected to the authority of Christ and must reflect the authority of Christ. Um, if it's used in ways that don't mesh with Christ's authority, um, it is being misused. So how does Christ deploy his authority? How does he exercise his authority? Um, does he hold on to his life, uh, hold on to himself with white knuckles? Uh, or does he give himself? Uh, he gives himself. He pours out his life, not just on behalf of his friends, but even on behalf of his enemies. How does he exercise his lordship? in a cruciform way, in a cross-shaped way? What kind of authority does he give to his followers? Does he give him the, the, them the authority to lord it over others, uh, to bend them to, to their pet uh, proclivities and wills? No, he gives them the authority to take up their cross and, and follow him. Um, and so the authority of Scripture is in the service of this really weird upside-down authoritative way that God works. When God really shows us what God is like through the incarnation of the Son, um, he's in, in, in abject humility and even humiliation. And this is God's power in the world. Um, this, this is how God acts. This is how God works. And so again, if you, if you have people wielding the authority of Scripture against this, they're not aligning themselves with what God's intentions for the Bible are. Um, so that, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's the authority piece. And okay. then how about, how yeah. Oh, I was yeah. going to say, yeah, why don't you, uh, yeah, do the, as your final question, then, you know, how it's, how it's profitable. And especially be thinking about a pastor, you know, we do have a lot of pastors who listen in. We have scholars, pastors, lay people, everyone, but a lot of pastors, right? Um, if a pastor was to say something about scripture's um, profitability to his, you know, to, to the pews um, on a Sunday morning, what would you be hoping they say? Yeah, well, I mean, just to, we, we keep circling around this language in, in uh, 2 Timothy, um, that Paul, or the Pauline author, writes, it's, it's, uh, it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Well, it is useful for teaching us about God, about God's character, uh, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That God is Creator. That God is Provident Lord of the Universe. Um, that God uh, is incarnate in the Son. Uh, that God pours out His Spirit in all flesh. Right? We can learn about these things through Scripture, through the language, through the data, through the words on the page. Um, it's not just useful for teaching us, though. It's also useful for correcting us, um, right? And to, to pastors, I would say, uh, man, uh, well, my, you know, I can't speak for your personal experience, but it is a terrifying thing to speak for God. Um, you know, I, th I always think of, and I quote um, uh, James, uh, James 3 to my, to my students, not many of you should become teachers. Not many of you should become 
pastors, those who teach will be judged more harshly, more strictly. Um, it is for correction for those of us who are teachers or pastors, those, those of us who have the audacity uh, to step into this call, right? If you have a call from God to, to speak or teach or preach, um, you better respond to it. Um, you better step up and you have to speak, um, but you better be terrified uh, by that. Um, scripture is really useful for correcting us, uh, for rebuking us, and for training us in, in righteousness. What does that mean? What is the righteousness of God? It's Christ and him crucified. Uh, what does that mean for a pastor, for a teacher, for a person in the pews, for, for uh, 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 somebody listening in curious about all this? Um, it means that uh, Scripture is useful for giving us the mind of Christ, for giving us humility. Um, you know, so many folks have treated it as a catalog of, uh, of data, of information. You know, uh, you know there are biblical ways to, uh, to raise your children, uh, biblical diets, uh, you know, biblical ways of, of thinking about X, Y, and Z. And um, uh, maybe not... Maybe not all of that is terrible, but whenever I've engaged most of that stuff, I've thought it entirely misses the point. So I shouldn't, I shouldn't go on a biblical diet. <laughs> uh, no, right. No, Ezekiel, Ezekiel yeah. bread is my favorite. Right? Yeah. Have you seen Ezekiel bread? Oh yeah. Yeah. I actually bring in a bag into my classroom of the Ezekiel bread and I have a whole like spiel I do to my students on yeah. <laughs> reading in context. Right. Right. Um, well, it's got, according to the scripture verse, yeah. Ezekiel 4, and it lists all the ingredients that are in it, but it, it doesn't for some reason include the yeah, fact that it's cooked over God told Ecclesial to bake it over human poop. Yeah. Well, um, it's also, you know, contextually, like, it's it's like, you know, they're in a time of war, so the whole point is they don't have wheat, so they're throwing all this kind of random stuff in the bread, right? It's yeah. not that this stuff is healthier. It's that they don't, you know, they're 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 in hardships, so that it's like you're going to be dumping all kinds of weird stuff into your bread. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. And, then, and this... Stuff. this yeah, this text is especially helpful for, for an aspect of training in righteousness that so many folks balk against that are teachers and, and preachers. Uh, that passage is just really bizarre um, in, in so many different ways. Um, and really, uh, you know, just open your, your Old Testament and a number of places in the New Testament. Uh, and if you really pay attention to the words on the page... Uh, to, to their context, you will discover that this is a very strange book. Um, and uh, in, in, in a lot of ways offensive um, that we, we could say this is the word of God after you know reading reading these texts. One of the ways God wants to train us in righteousness is by disabusing us of the notion that we can uh, just take this book and read it and know everything about everything. Um, if you really study Scripture carefully, you will discover uh, you you know much less than you thought. Um, and uh, uh, th there's a quotation from Luther in in um, uh, in the section on on the Word of God in chapter six, where he talks about how it's it's really just perfect to uh, it's the perfect kind of instrument God could give us to to squelch our pride and dis destroy our pretensions to to knowing everything. Um, again, the authority of God is, is exercised through abject humili humility and even humiliation through Christ giving of himself, pouring out himself. Um, and uh, if you read scripture carefully, 
Sometimes you need to throw up your hands and say, I don't know what to do with this. And God intends for that to happen in you. For you to, 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 to throw up your hands, to open your, your hands, uh, to, to let go. Instead of gripping this and saying, this is the word of God and, and everybody needs to do what it says, which just happens to align with how I think the world should be run. You're not running the world. Um, God is. God is reconciling all things in Christ through the Spirit, whether you and I are paying attention or not. And God gives us this text for us to share in that work. And sharing in that work is not, uh, <laughs> does not give us the control that we in our idolatrous uh, uh, tendencies want. In fact, it, 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 it forces us to let go. Yeah. Well, I can tell we, we uh, tapped into your true deepest passion at the end here. Uh, not that you're not passionate about all your work, but uh, um, I think that uh, your, your enthusiasm and your, your joy for what you do and your, your love for this topic really shines through, uh, especially in that ending material in your book and in this, uh, in this conversation that we've been having. Well, we're going to have to wrap it up. Um, thanks so much for the conversation today, Joe. Yeah, my pleasure, Matt. Thanks for having me. This is Matthew Bates for On Script, and I've been talking with Joseph K. Gordon about his book, Divine Scripture in Human Understanding, A Systematic Theology of the Christian Bible. It's published by the University of Notre Dame Press in 2019. There's a link on, you, on the website uh, for book purchases, so you can go to www.onscript.study and find a link to the book there. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.